Welcome again to Christ and Cthulhu. I am your host, C.L. Fuquay, and today we continue the Lovecraft novella, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, with part two. A quick side note on the naming of sections. There are proper chapters to the story, but within certain chapters, there are multiple sections delineated with, it, with numbers. So today's part two is within chapter one. When we get to chapter two proper, you'll know as it comes with its own subtitle. Okay, enough of the logistics. Let's get into the recap for section one. The story is introduced to us as a literal case of the titular character. He's gone missing from his cell in a madhouse. The escape is seemingly impossible and no explanations are present other than the hints and whispers from Charles's long, lifelong physician, Dr. Willett. From the first section, we're given a very brief character summary of Charles Ward, a young and extremely bright man who had an overwhelming love and fascination for antiquarianism. Conflicting accounts about what led to his madness abound, but what is known is the strangeness of his physical and psychological traits up until his disappearance. I couldn't help but recall the similarities of exploring church history as a curious Protestant and being drawn deeper and deeper until I found the truth of orthodoxy. This is similar to Charles digging through not only the past in general, but pinpointing his long-ago relative, Joseph Kerwin. The horror of Lovecraft is in the otherness of the monstrosities presented, but I love that he can present us with such relatable desires as wanting to know more about your family, your past, and ultimately yourself. With that, let's get right into part two. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward Part 2 One must look back at Charles Ward's earlier life as at something belonging as much to the past as the antiquities he loved so keenly. In the autumn of 1918, and with a considerable show of zest in the military training of the period, he had begun his junior year at the Moses Brown School, which lies very near his home. The old main building, erected in 1819, had always charmed his youthful antiquarian sense, and the spacious park in which the academy is set appealed to his sharp eye for landscape. His social activities were few, and his hours were spent mainly at home in rambling walks, in his classes and drills, and, and in pursuit of antiquarian and genealogical data at the city hall, the state house, the public library, the Athenaeum, the Historical Society, the John Carter Brown and John Hay Libraries of Brown University, and the newly opened Shepley Library in Benefit Street. One may picture him yet as he was in those days, tall, slim, and blonde, with studious eyes and a slight stoop, dressed somewhat carelessly and giving a dominant impression of harmless awkwardness rather than attractiveness. His walks were always adventures in antiquity, during which he managed to recapture from the myriad relics of a glamorous old city a vivid and connected picture of the centuries before. His home was a great Georgian mansion atop the well-nigh precipitous hill that rises just east of the river, and from the rear windows of its rambling wings he could look dizzily out over all the clustered spires, domes, roofs, and skyscraper summits of the lower town to the purple hills of the countryside beyond. Here he was born, and from the lovely classic porch of the double-bayed brick facade, his nurse had first wheeled him in his carriage, past the little white farmhouse of 200 years before that the town had long ago overtaken, and on toward the stately colleges along the shady, sumptuous street, whose old square brick mansions and smaller wooden houses, with narrow, heavy-columned Doric porches, dreamed solid and exclusive amidst their generous yards and gardens. He had been wheeled, too, along sleepy Congdon Street, one tier lower down on the steep hill, and with all its eastern homes on the high terraces, 
The small wooden houses averaged a greater age here, for it was up this hill that the growing town had climbed, and in these rides he had imbibed something of the color of a quaint colonial village. The nurse used to stop and sit on the benches of Prospect Terrace to chat with policemen, and one of the child's first memories was of that great westward sea of hazy roofs and domes and steeples and far hills which he saw one winter afternoon from that great railed embankment, all violet and mystic against a fevered, apocalyptic sunset of reds and golds and purples and curious greens. The vast marble dome of the state house stood out in massive silhouette, its crowning statue haloed fantastically by a break in one of the tinted stratus clouds that barred the flaming sky. When he was larger, his famous walks began, first with his impatiently dragged nurse, and then alone in dreamy meditation. Farther and farther down that almost per perpendicular hill he would venture, each time reaching older and quainter levels of the ancient city. He would hesitate gingerly down vertical Jenks Street with its bank walls and colonial gables to the shady Benefit Street corner where before him was a wooden antique with an ionic pilastered pair of doorways and beside him a prehistoric gamble roofer with a bit of primal farmyard remaining and the great Judge Dufry house with its fallen vestiges of Georgian grandeur. It was getting to be a slum here but the Titan Elms cast a restoring shadow over the place and the boy used to stroll south past the long lines of the pre-revolutionary homes with their great central chimneys and classic portals. On the eastern side, they were set high over basements with railed double flights of stone steps, and the young Charles could picture them as they were when the street was new, and red heels and periwigs set off the painted pediments whose signs of wear were now becoming so visible. Westward the hill dropped almost as steeply as above, down to the old town street that the founders had laid out at the river's edge in 1636. Here ran innumerable little lanes with leaning, huddled houses of immense antiquity. And fascinated though he was, it was long before he dared to thread their archaic verticality for fear they would turn out a dream or a gateway to unknown terrors. He found it much less formidable to continue along Benefit Street, past the iron fence of St. John's Hidden Churchyard, and the rear of the 1761 Colony House, and the moldering bulk of the Golden Ball Inn where Washington stopped. At Meeting Street, the successive Gale Lane, and King Street of other periods, he would look upward to the east and see the arched flight of steps to which the highway had to resort in climbing the slope, and downward to the west, glimpsing the old brick colonial schoolhouse that smiles across the road at the ancient sign of Shakespeare's head, where the Providence Gazette and Count and Country Journal was printed before the Revolution. Then came the exquisite First Baptist Church of 1775, luxurious with its matchless Gibbs steeples and the Georgian roofs and cupolas hovering by. Here and to the southward the neighborhood became better, flowering at last into a marvelous group of early mansions, but still the little ancient lanes led off down the precipice to the west, spectral in their many gabled archaism, and dipping to a riot of iridescent decay where the wicked old waterfront recalls its proud East India days amidst polyglot vice and squalor rotting wharves, and blear-eyed ship chandleries with such surviving alley names as packet, bullion, gold, silver, coin, doubloon, sovereign, gilder, dollar, dime, and cent. Sometimes as he grew taller and more adventurous, young Ward would venture down into the maelstrom of tottering houses, broken transoms, tumbling steps, twisted balustrades, swarthy faces, and nameless odors, winding from South Main to South Water, searching out the docks where the bay and sound steamers still touched, 
and returning northward at this lower level past the steep-roofed 1816 warehouses and the broad square of the Great Bridge, where the 1773 Market House still stands firm on its ancient arches. In that square, he would pause to drink in the bewildering beauty of the old town as it rises on its eastward bluff. Decked with its two Georgian spires and crowned by the vast new Christian Science Dome as London is crowned by St. Paul's. He liked mostly to reach this point in the late afternoon, when the slanting sunlight touches the market house and the ancient hill roofs and belfries with gold, and throws magic around the dreaming wharves where Providence Indiamen used to ride at anchor. After a long look, he would grow almost dizzy with a poet's love for the sight, and then he would scale the slope homeward in the dust past the old white church and up the narrow precipitous ways where yellow gleams would begin to peep out in small paned windows and through fanlights set high over double flights of steps with curious wrought iron railings. At other times and in later years, he would seek for vivid contrast, spending half a walk in the crumbling colonial regions northwest of his home, where the hill drops to the lower eminence of Stamper's Hill with its ghetto and negro quarters clustering around the place where the Boston stagecoach used to start before the revolution and the other half in the gracious southerly realm about George, Benevolent, Power, and Williams Street, where the old slope holds unchanged the fine estates and bits of walled garden and steep green lane in which so many fragrant memories linger. These rambles, together with the diligent studies which accompanied them, certainly account for a large amount of the antiquarian lore which at last crowded the modern world from Charles Ward's mind, and illustrate the mental soil upon which fell in that fateful winter of 1919 and 1920, the seeds that came to such strange and terrible fruition. Dr. Willett is certain, up to this ill-omened winter of first changed, Charles Ward's antiquarianism was free from every trace of the morbid. Graveyards held for him no particular attraction beyond their quaintness and historical value, and of anything like violence or savage instinct he was utterly devoid. Then, by insidious degrees, there appeared to develop a curious sequel to one of his genealogical triumphs of the year before, when he had discovered among his maternal ancestors a certain very long-lived man named Joseph Kerwin, who had come from Salem in March of 1692, and about whom a whispered series of highly peculiar and disquieting stories clustered. War's great-great-grandfather, Welcome Potter, had, in 1785, married a certain Anne Tillinghast, daughter of Mrs. Eliza, daughter to Captain James Tillinghast, of whose paternity the family had preserved no trace. Late in 1918, whilst examining a volume of original town records and manuscript, the young genealogist encountered an entry describing a legal change of name, by which in 1772, a Mrs. Eliza Kerwin, widow of Joseph Kerwin, resumed, along with her seven-year-old daughter Anne, her maiden name of Tillinghast, on the ground that her husband's name was become a public reproach by reason of what was known after his decease, the which confirming an antique common rumor, though not to be credited by a loyal wife till so proven as to be wholly past doubting. This entry came to light upon the accidental separation of two leaves which had been carefully pasted together and treated as one by a labored revision of the page numbers. It was at once clear to Charles Ward that he had indeed discovered a hitherto unknown great-great-great-grandfather. The discovery doubly excited him because he had already heard vague reports and seen scattered allusions relating to this person, about whom there remained so few publicly available records, aside from those becoming public only in modern times, 
and it almost seemed as if a conspiracy had existed to blot him from memory. What did appear, moreover, was of such a singular and provocative nature that one could not fail to imagine, curiously, what it was that the colonial recorders were so anxious to conceal and forget, or to suspect that the deletion had reasons all too valid. Before this, Ward had been content to let his romancing about old Joseph Curran remain in the idle stage, but having discovered his own relationship to this apparently hushed-up character, he proceeded to hunt out as systematically as possible whatever he might find concerning him. In this excited quest he eventually succeeded beyond his highest expectations, for old letters, diaries, and sheaves of unpublished memoirs in cobweb providence garrets and elsewhere yielded many illuminating passages, which their writers had not thought it worth their while to destroy. One important sidelight came from a point as remote as New York, where some Rhode Island colonial correspondence was stored in the museum at Francis Tavern. The really crucial thing though, and in what Dr. Willis' opinion formed, the definite source of Ward's undoing, was the matter found in August 1919 behind the paneling of the crumbling house in Olney Court. It was that, beyond a doubt, which opened up those black vistas whose end was deeper than the pit. And that ends the reading section for this week. Here we learn more about the nature of Charles Ward, what he was like, what interested him, what he did with his time. Because this is a considerably longer story than the usual Lovecraft fare, he actually has a chance to develop characters, something which is noticeably absent from the shorter works. This isn't a criticism, but merely an observation. Lovecraft is usually going for an atmosphere, a concept, a feeling. Although I have to point out an exception, he was able to establish, at least for me, pity and concern for a character in the story, The Thing on the Doorstep, but I digress. In the exposition of Charles' daily routine is also an excuse for Lovecraft to further wax poetic on old New England architecture. But we aren't beaten over the head with it and it weaves nicely into the topic of when the morbidity began to slip into his interest. I don't really have anything to add to this section as far as religion, so I won't force it. With this story, there may be many episodes like that, and that's alright by me, just more of his work being made accessible. As much as this podcast is a way for me to share orthodoxy, it's also a way to share Lovecraft, so learn to love Lovecraft for his own sake. Next time, we will begin Chapter 2, An Antecedent in a Horror. The music for this episode was provided by a couple of artists. First we have Graham Plowman and his work which you can find on GrahamPlowman.com, Apple Music, YouTube, and Facebook. We also have Cryo Chamber Music which you can find as well on Apple Music, YouTube, Facebook, as well as Bandcamp. I've been your host CL Fuquay and until next time remember... That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. <laughs>